Trinity Baptist Church. Imagine what this room would look like with 15 people scattered around the sanctuary. A lot, a lot different from now. My name is Meredith Gandy, and I think that my husband, Ted, and I have probably been here longer than anyone else. Um, when we uh, moved to New York uh, in 1976, first came to Trinity, there were actually 15 people sitting in the pews. There were also 15 people back here in the choir. <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic. Um, of those 30 people, some of them were old. Um, well, actually, they just seemed old to me at the time. Um, and the rest were young singles uh, in their 20s. Uh, there hadn't been a full-time pastor for quite a while, and so visiting people came and spoke every week. Um, we had two small children, and so we asked about the nursery, but as you might imagine, given this congregation makeup, there was no nursery. But those 30 people, they welcomed us with warmth and hospitality. The following, by the following week, they had painted a room, they'd gathered toys, they'd signed up for nursery duty to accommodate us and for the others that they prayed would begin to come and that we knew that we had found a church home. Some of my earliest memories from those days actually took place in the kitchen. Um, a lot of those, the people who were attending when we first began were Swedish, and it was their firm conviction that the only way, the only proper way to drink coffee was with a china cup and saucer. And so after every Trinity event, we had to wash dishes because there was no dishwasher. And it was as we washed and dried together that friendships developed. And out of those friendships grew Bible studies and service opportunities. And soon uh, Trinity was, was like sort of a strong center for us in the, the midst of the swirl of our adopted city. Now back in the 70s when the congregations was so small, there was a lot of financial pressure to sell this property. Um, this is the Upper East Side. Real estate is always at a premium. And there were costs, there was finances, there was insurance, and there was heat, and there was light. And um, the tiny congregation regularly received offers to purchase this place. Um, and it was, it was tempting. But there was a strong conviction that God had a call on this church and, and on its people. And it was a call to be his light from this location to the city and to the rest of the world. And, and to that end, like the older Swedes, even before our time, they gave large amounts of money to Trinity in their wills. They wanted things to go on. Uh, the young singles, they gave sacrificially out of their meager paychecks. And the, the denomination contributed. It seemed like there was always just enough to get by. Um, they had a shared vision that this was a sacred space and it shouldn't be lost. And because of them, it has come down to us. And I, I sometimes wish that more of those 30 people could be here today and they could see the nursery filled with children and see two services um, instead of one. Um, we have received a legacy that, that started back with the old Swedes and, 
and passed down to the congregation of the 70s and has come to us. And it, it, it's a responsibility, but I think it's also a great gift. Thank you. Let's read together. Let's read together from God's Word in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. If any of you are, um, are you know, redoing your will right now, <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know if any of these people are in this service, so I'm just going to call out their names. Um, Lourdes, I don't see Lourdes. Um, Lily, Jan. Lily, Lourdes, there, there you are. I know you're Lourdes. Come on up here. Is Lily here? Is, is Lisa here? No, she's in second service. Mercedes? Second service. Okay, Virginia. Virginia, come up here, Virginia. And Roseanne, is Roseanne here? Okay. Come over here. Okay, we haven't done this in a while. It's China Cup time. Um, periodically, we, um, we mug people at Trinity because um, there are folks that just serve and serve and serve behind the scenes that don't get any recognition. And so we have created these mugs that say, Trinity loves me. And um, Lourdes and, and Virginia are part of a team that prepare and clean up communion every week. Every week with these, um, 
These trays do not magically appear. They don't magically disappear. Uh, and so these ladies, um, Virginia and, and Roseanne and Mercedes, come in early in the week and, and prepare everything. And Lourdes and Lily and Lisa help clean it all up after each service. So we just want to say thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, <clears throat> Let me, let me just pray over these folks. Lord, I am so grateful for, um, <clears throat> for these ladies and their just tireless service behind the scenes as they just give of themselves because they want to love you, they want to love us. And so, Lord, we just want to let them know that we love them. And so I just pray your blessing on them and pray that they will feel your um, or hear your well done every week as they are preparing this sacred moment for us. Um, we pray all this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lord. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for joining Question. <clears throat> How many of you have ever had someone wrong you? Anybody, somebody lied to you, stole from you, um, talked bad about you, slandered you, betrayed you? Anybody ever had that happen to you? Okay, that's about 100% of us. Next question. Has anyone ever hurt you so deeply that you had a difficult time forgiving them of that hurt? Anybody? Uh, that's not quite 100%, but it's most of us. Um, that's good because that lets me know that this message is for all of us today. Um, we're in this series called Free where we've been talking about what, how we can step into the freedom that God has for us. Um, Paul told the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But what does that freedom look like? And we've talked about in this series that freedom isn't about doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. That, that is an unworkable definition. Freedom is really about choices. And so this morning you had the choice, you had the freedom to stay at home in bed. It's kind of damp and, and cool and, and just kind of curl up in your blanket and grab the, the times or something and have some coffee. You had freedom to do that. Or you had the choice to come here. But you couldn't do both. You had to make a choice. And that's what freedom is all about. It's about choices. And so we've been looking at these choices. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, the choice between being counterfeit or being real. Last week, we looked at the, the choice between um, being proud or being humble. This morning, we're going to look at the choice between being bitter or being better. You see, if we... When someone wrongs us, we have the choice to hold on to that wrong, to hold on to a grudge against that person. But at the end of the day, that choice just makes us bitter. We have another choice, a better choice. And that choice is called forgiveness. Um, for a myriad of reasons... 
even we as Christians who have been forgiven um, this incredible debt, because of our selfishness, our woundedness, our self-righteousness, we are prone to harbor resentment and bitterness. We have unforgiveness toward parents, unforgiveness toward friends who have wounded us, unforgiveness toward institutions that have wronged us, toward strangers and family members that have abused us, um, toward roommates who have annoyed us over and over and over, right? I'm sure there are some of us who have had specific, significant events in our lives that have been so hurtful, so deeply painful, that it's been extremely difficult, if not seemingly impossible, to forgive. But most of our resentments are smaller than that. Most of our resentments, we kind of pick up day after day after day, and they just pile up and pile up, and they begin to erode us from the inside, just as a, as a significant event can Either way, unforgiveness is a form of bondage that God wants to set us free from. He doesn't want us to be bitter. He wants us to be better. So this morning, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And I've got six points for us today. So we'll be here till Tuesday. Um, if, you're a note, if you're a note taker, today is your day. Six points. Woohoo! Um, so here's what we're going to talk through today, and I'm going to try to remind you of these six points along the way so that you can kind of keep track. Number one, what forgiveness is. I think it's important that we're all on the same page with regard to what it is. Second, what Jesus says about forgiveness. Three, why Jesus cares whether or not we forgive. Number four, what unforgiveness does to us if we continue to harbor it and not release it, why we struggle to forgive, and, and lastly, the only way we can truly forgive. So let's begin by looking at the text that Meredith read for us just a few moments ago. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1899, or you can just follow on the screens. We'll be throwing some verses up. In verse 21 of Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, Peter is going big here. Jewish tradition said that you only had to forgive somebody three times. And so Peter's going big. He doubles that and adds one. And, and he's been hanging out with Jesus for a while, and he knows that Jesus is, is more into forgiveness than some of the other teachers. And so he says, hey, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? <laughs> kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm going out there. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. Or as some translations put it, 70 times seven now, don't think here that Jesus is talking about, you know, 70 times 7 equals 490, uh, if my math is correct. Um, think of an infinite number. Think that Jesus is saying, um, you don't 
you don't forgive a specific number of times. You forgive every time. You forgive every single time forgiveness is necessary. You see, what Jesus is essentially saying is, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. See, Jesus says, um, you, you forgive every time you, you need to. And then he gives us this parable that explains why. And I'll just kind of summarize what Meredith read to us. This guy who owes the king, you know, something like our national debt, trillions of dollars, which he can't repay. He, he goes in and begs the king for forgiveness. And down in verse 27, it says, The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Canceled the debt and let him go. That's a good start in defining what forgiveness is. Um, the word forgive in this passage literally means to release, to let go. And so forgiveness always means a, a letting go or a canceling of some kind of debt. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. There was a pastor about 300 years ago named Thomas Watson. And he gave this great definition for, for forgiveness as he was commenting on the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. And so Watson says, this is what forgiveness really looks like. We forgive others when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but we wish well to them. We grieve with their calamities, we pray for them, we seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's pretty comprehensive. And I really like it because everything that I've read on forgiveness makes the point that forgiveness is not, is not merely an absence of unforgiveness, which is passive, but there's an active intentionality about it. One article put it this way, just as health is not the absence of illness, forgiveness is not the absence of unforgiveness. It goes on and says, that is to say that one does not forgive by merely avoiding revengeful thoughts toward another person, but forgiveness actually consists of replacing those, those vengeful thoughts with grace and mercy and love. I think that what Watson says captures that. He says forgiveness, yes, it includes resisting vengeful thoughts, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with, okay, I won't be mad at you anymore. It goes on, and it, it talks about this transformation of the heart where we, we wish them well, we grieve their calamities, we pray for their welfare, we seek reconciliation, um, we come to their aid when they need it. That's a, that's a whole different level than just saying, I'm not going to be mad at you, right? And that's the transformation that God wants to bring in our heart through forgiveness, where we move from a hatred towards someone to really loving that person. I also think it's important to talk about what forgiveness is not. 
Ken Sandy talks about this in his book, The Peacemaker. He says, forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting what has been done, um, as if that were possible. Forgiveness is, is, he says, forgiveness is not the absence of anger towards sin. It doesn't mean that you stop longing for justice. In fact, we are commanded to do justice. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you ignore the fact or excuse the fact that a wrong has been done or a sin has been committed. See, forgiveness doesn't mean that we put ourselves in a position to be hurt over and over and over again. Those things are not what forgiveness is about. And I would also say this, forgiveness is rarely a one-time event. Forgiveness is a process. And for some of us, it can be a long process. And so when you read Watson's definition, don't get discouraged because you're not there yet. Uh, because you're not ready to, you know, come to the aid of the person who's hurt you. Understand that this is a process and that it's going to take time to get there. But you can get there. Now, if you've been journeying down this path for years and you're still not in the place where you're inclined to help out the person who's wronged you, then I would say you, you got some heart work that needs to be done. You need to look and see what's inside your heart, what's going on in there. But for most of us, this process of forgiveness can take some time. But be encouraged because God will bring about that change by the power of the Holy Spirit if you will allow him to. Um, So back to the parable. Or let me just try to sum up what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not only putting away revengeful thoughts but it is caring about and caring for the person who has wronged us. That's what forgiveness is. Back to the parable. What does Jesus say about forgiveness? And this is point two. The guy walks out with this enormous debt, having been forgiven. And you would think that having been forgiven this huge amount... His heart would have been just full of of joy um, and freedom. But then he bumps into a friend who owes him like a hundred bucks and he begins to choke him, demanding that the man cough up the money. And when his debtor couldn't come up with the cash, the forgiven servant had the audacity to have his friend thrown in prison. He harbored the debt. A word gets back to the king who summarily has the forgiven servant thrown into prison where he is tortured. And and Jesus concludes in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Ow. What's the point? When someone has sinned against you, You have a choice. You have two options. Option one, you can do all that you can to exact payment. Choke them if you have to, but if they don't pay up, you put them in prison. It may not be behind literal bars, but you imprison them behind the bars of your resentment toward them. Do you know what resentment means? 
The etymology of resentment, resentiment, resentment literally means to feel again. You, you relive the thing over and over and over, and you don't, you, you don't let the wound heal. It just festers. Um, and in the end, while you are trying to punish your debtor, you're the one that gets tortured with bitterness. As someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. <laughs> I love that. It's the poison we drink, hoping you're going to die. See, the problem with, with unforgiveness is you're the one that winds up being in prison, being tortured. You are not free. That's one choice you can make. There's a second option, and it's called forgiveness. It's when you look at the benevolence of the cross where God wiped out the huge debt that you owed and you are so overcome by his grace that you can't help but offer the same thing to others. And just like the cross, forgiveness doesn't settle all questions of blame and fairness. In fact, it often evades those very things. But it does allow the relationship to start anew. Friends, that's what Jesus is teaching in this parable, and it's radical. And it's not just in this parable. Jesus consistently taught that. Think about Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount where he's teaching his disciples about prayer. And, and he's talking about what we have called, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, which Interestingly, even non-Christ followers pray. But Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what's going on up there, we want to go on down here. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Relationally, God, what's going on up there, we want to go on down here. And in order for it to go on down here, we need to forgive down here as you have forgiven up there. That's what Jesus is teaching in the parable. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he says it again. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So Jesus' teaching on this subject couldn't be more consistent, and his demonstration of it couldn't be more stunning. I'm so thankful that Jesus is not a God who tells us what to do, and then, but then doesn't do it himself. Right? Remember what Jesus said on the cross? He's hanging on the cross as these men and women below him are mocking him and spitting upon him and gambling for his clothes after he has been uh, abandoned by those who were closest to him. He has been unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, and is being unjustly punished, and he's hanging on the cross. Remember what he says? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Friends, Jesus doesn't tell us to do something that he doesn't do himself. Now, you might be thinking, and you guys weren't in the room um, before the service, but when Meredith was up here, you know, practicing reading the scripture, she said, yeah, I get the scripture. I just don't like that last verse. And we don't like the last verse. Because we read that and we think, well, what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that, that we're not saved if, we're not, if we don't forgive? It sounds kind of like that he's teaching exactly opposite of what the, the Apostle Paul teaches. You know, where Paul says that you're saved by grace through faith. This makes it sound like you're saved based on whether or not you forgive people. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. See, there are two kinds of forgiveness. One is judicial, the other relational. One is eternal, the other temporal. One is positional, the other practical. Let me see if I can clarify. Scripture tells us that those who believe in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross receive God's judicial, eternal, positional forgiveness the moment they put their trust in Jesus. Salvation is a free gift. Paul says to the Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul says to the Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we place our trust in Christ, confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness, the eternal judge declares us pardoned, justified, righteous, forgiven. And as Paul says in Romans 8, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. It is finished. It's done. Just condemnation has fallen on the cross, and we who stand in its shadow are judicially, eternally, positionally forgiven. That's the good news. The bad news is we still fall into sin behaviorally every day because we've not yet been made perfect. Even though we are positionally righteous, we are not practically righteous. Just because we are judiciously righteous, we are not relationally righteous. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Because if we want the, the relationship that we're going to have in heaven with God, that, that intimacy of the relationship, the peace of the relationship in heaven, on earth, we need to constantly be asking for that relational forgiveness. Because when, there's, when, because when we sin, it brings this, this relational wall between us and God, and we lose out on the intimacy that, that can be there. Think of it like this. Um, Let's just say I have a disagreement 
with Deanne. Purely hypothetical, okay? <laughs> Never happens. Um, let's just say that, um, that I wrong her, that I, I sin against her and hurt her di- deeply. Again, purely hypothetical. And let's say, um, hypothetically speaking, that I'm a proud man. And because I'm a proud man, I'm not going to admit to my sin and I'm not going to confess to her and I'm just going to dig my heels in on this thing. Now, um, positionally, has our relationship changed? No, we are still married. Am I going to sleep on the couch? Yes, I am. Because relationally, there's this invisible wall that has come up. Positionally, I'm still her husband. But relationally, the intimacy has been, has been um, inhibited because I haven't asked for forgiveness. See, the same thing is true with God. Positionally, judicially, eternally, we are forgiven because of what Christ did. But there still needs to be relational forgiveness that takes place. And that's the point of Matthew 18. The king forgave this this infinite sum, and the servant turned around, and for relative pocket change, didn't show the guy mercy. The servant didn't get it. He thought it was about a monetary exchange. He didn't get the mercy part. He didn't understand that this is why Jesus over and over and over comes at forgiveness like this because he is serious about us, his people, forgiving others because refusing to do that is a contradiction to the way he has treated us. And so we can't have intimacy with him. And we can't enjoy the freedom then that he came to give us if we have unforgiveness in our hearts toward other people. That's the point of Matthew 18. And that's why Jesus cares. That's point number three if you're taking notes. This is why Jesus is so strong on this. Because he means for us as his people, both corporately and individually, to display to one another and to the world what he is like. And when we do that, we get to taste. We get, we get to taste some of the freedom that God has. Um, just incidentally, um, who is the freest being in the universe? Not a trick question. God is. Next question. Who is the freest being in the universe? God is. Coincidence? I don't think so. You see, when we forgive, we get to step into that being like him. And we get to experience some of that freedom. You see, when we are unforgiving... We are the ones that get tortured. This is point four. What unforgiveness does to us if we continue to harbor it and not release it 
is it leads to bondage. It leads to bitterness that erodes your soul, that deteriorates your physical body, and that robs you of the joy and contentment and freedom that we all seek. In a comprehensive way, unforgiveness destroys your life. Mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, it destroys us. And what's interesting, both scripture and scientific research say the same thing on this. Hebrews chapter 12 It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, bitterness creates havoc. Bitterness is drinking that poison. Bitterness defiles us in every way. That's what scripture is telling us and that's what research shows us. This is from the Stanford Forgiveness Project. The the smart people at Stanford did this research. Um, It says, the class participants showed reductions in their perceived level of stress, viewed themselves as less angry, and reported a marked increase in their confidence that they would be more forgiving in the future. They showed specific improvement in physical well-being and significant decreases in symptoms such as chest pain, back pain, nausea, headaches, sleep problems, and loss of appetite. That's what the smart people at Stanford found. And the guy who led this research, a guy by the name of Frederick Luskin, he said, when you give too much space to that to that which has hurt you, what you're shutting out is your own ability to feel love and joy. Hmm. The Mayo Clinic says the same thing. Their study concluded that forgiveness can lead to healthier relationships, greater spiritual and and psychological well-being, less anxiety, less stress, less hostility, less hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, stronger immune system, improved heart health, and higher self-esteem. This isn't rocket science. Forgiveness brings health while unforgiveness and bitterness comprehensively defile us. And Jesus knew that. Now, you would think this research would be enough to make people want to forgive, even if for self-seeking reasons. I mean, if you are a complete narcissist, you would look at this stuff, this research, and go, dang, if I've got resentment in my, my heart, I need to get over it because I want to stop having these backaches. I want to stop having these stomach aches. Right? I mean, even if you're totally self-interested and totally self-seeking, you would say, I need to learn how to be forgiving. But we don't. Why not? Well, there's a lot of reasons I can think of. The pain is too deep. I want things to be made right first. I want them to be truly sorry for what they did. Don't don't you just wish sometimes Jesus would say, forgive unless they're not sorry. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
Don't you wish he would say stuff like that? Forgive until they, or unless they don't make it right, you know? But he doesn't say that. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, whether they feel sorry or not, whether they make it right or not, if you are unforgiving, you are still the one being tortured. And Jesus says, if you want to be free, forgive. We also struggle to forgive because of our arrogance and our self-righteousness. If we will take off our masks like we talked about two weeks ago, if we will humble ourselves like we talked about last week and just say, me too, we'll find a, a whole lot easier to forgive. You know, it's almost impossible to be bitter towards someone who does stuff that you know you do all the time. Have you thought about that? It's almost impossible to be bitter towards somebody when you know that you are doing just as bad as they are. We need to recognize the enormity of the debt we have been forgiven of and get off our high horse and not demand payment from the guy who owes us a buck. Here's the bottom line. When we aren't forgiving, it's because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. And that's point six. When we see what God has done for us at great cost to himself, when we truly embrace that with our hearts, it dissolves our hearts. It changes our hearts. It melts us and it compels us to forgive others. Friends, that's the only way we can truly forgive, by looking at the forgiveness that we have received. In his book, The Art of Forgiving, Lewis Smedes wrote one of the most profound things on forgiveness I've ever read. He said, The first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. When we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the, that the person we set free was us. I titled this message, Bitter or Better. I could have called it Jail or Joy. Because that's what forgiveness is all about, jail or joy. If we want peace in our lives, if we want to experience the freedom for which Christ has set us free, there is only one rational choice. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bitter or better. Jail or joy. The choice is ours. Let me pray for us. Lord, sometimes it is so hard, so hard to let go of the hurts that we have, um, that we've experienced, that we've endured from other people. And yet, you show us 
that if we really want to be free, we got to let go of that. And we've got to move from a place of not just having, of, of, of simply not harboring vengeful thoughts, but we need to move to a place where we care about and care for the other person, even as you care about and care for us, even though we have sinned against you. We sin against you every single day. Lord, I pray that you would give us both the, um, the courage to step into forgiveness. Um, but then, Lord, give us the, the strength and the, and the willpower and the, 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 the ability to move forward because that's where freedom is. I want you to just spend a couple moments here before we come to the table. I want you to let the Holy Spirit put maybe one person, just one, start with one, on your heart that, that you've been holding a little resentment for. I want you to picture that person. And I want you to I want you to picture, I want you to visualize the fact that Jesus died for that person. ask the Lord now to enable you to start moving toward that person in forgiveness. And friends, I recognize that that forgiveness doesn't happen in a moment. It's not going to happen because you heard a sermon or because you read a book or because you felt convicted. But it, but it starts with that first step. So ask the Lord to help you to take that first step on the journey toward caring about and caring for. Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, we we celebrate what you did to forgive us. We celebrate the fact that your your body was broken as we as we eat the bread, and we celebrate the fact that your blood was shed as we drink that cup, the cup of forgiveness of sin. So, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that we would all just be overwhelmed 
by the enormous debt that you paid for us, that you canceled on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that your forgiveness of us would, would then help us to be forgiving of others so that we might step into the freedom that you came to give us. In Jesus' name, amen.